Hi, I'm Rashma Sajani, the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code. Welcome to Brave, Not Perfect. On this podcast, I talk with up-and-coming changemakers who are leaving their fear of failure behind and letting bravery lead the way. You'll hear from incredible people who are using their skills and talents to make a difference in their community. And I'll ask them about the moments where they decided to be brave, not perfect. This week, I'm talking to Yeshi Milner, the co-founder and executive director of Data for Black Lives. She is simply incredible. Her bold idea, creating real and measurable change in the lives of black people by mobilizing scientists around racial justice issues. My name is Yashima Bet Milner, and I am the founder and executive director of Data for Black Lives. I noticed when I was checking out your LinkedIn page that you ask viewers a question. How do you define the future while we are engaged in the act of creating it? How do you define it? I define the future as being possibilities. In the present, it's recognizing those possibilities, but also recognizing the moments that we're in, good and bad crises, but also opportunities, you know? So right now from where I'm sitting, the future could look one or two or three ways, but (laughs) how do we do the work now? The deep relationship building, the deep movement building, and of course the actual like data and technology work, not just change something for ourselves, but for our children's 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 children's. So how'd you start Data for Black Lives? How are you inspired by this idea? Like tell me everything. I officially started it, we launched it with a conference at the MIT Media Lab in November of 2017, but honestly, this is something that I've been working on my entire life. Growing up, I always loved school, but I think like a lot of young black girls and boys and other people of color, your passion for learning sometimes is often met with an impulse to criminalize it and punish. The first time I ever got suspended ever was in sixth grade in my computer class. And I was so excited about learning about floppy disk and typing (laughs) that I talked out of turn. But because our school was under these policies called zero tolerance, where instead of putting school counselors, it was replaced with cops. And it was just a kind of punitive environment. Instead of me being recognized as someone who was super excited about learning about floppy disk, I was sent to three-day indoor suspension. Unbelievable. But that was such an important moment in my life. Even as a child, I realized something's really not right here. And I was just so eager for an opportunity to try to change it. And I actually got that opportunity in high school. The very first time I ever collected data was after some young people that I knew in Miami had organized a peaceful protest because... And what? An, an administrator had put a student in a chokehold. This was in 2007 before like, there was any mainstream media attention around police brutalities and in particular in certain schools. And I remember, you know, literally being at home and watching on CNN students riot in Miami Edison Senior High and like seeing kids that I went to like middle school and elementary school with being pushed into police cars. And I was just like, something is really, really wrong here. You know, right now, thankfully, we're at a moment where young people walking out and taking nonviolent protests within their schools, that's really, really recognized and encouraged. But then again, where we were, it was criminalized. And I think I realized then that we needed to do work to really build the political voice of young people in my community and um, 
maybe nonviolent protest wasn't the way. Maybe we needed to find other channels. And that's when data came in for me. So we hit the ground running. We surveyed 600 students on their experiences. This is when you're in high school. This is when I was high school. I, wow. I was 17. We you're surveyed seven, yeah. 600 students on their experiences with suspensions and arrests in schools. We were pushing for an, a solution called restorative justice. This was years before Obama administration went out and publicly began to use language around school to prison pipeline and encourage solutions like restorative justice. But we were trying to have our voices heard. We were doing this after like going to public hearing meetings with our school board and being like disrespected by our superintendent. But we actually did all this data collection and turned it into a comic book. And that comic book is still online today. What's it called? It's called Telling It Like It Is. Students in Miami talk about the school, the prison pipeline. Wow. And I found out years later, to this day, people come up to me telling me about how they were able to use that same comic book in Denver and in Oakland and even in um, New Orleans because they were kind of experiencing the same conditions. And we knew that. You know, hey, I'm, I'm not a bad kid because I was getting suspended. This is a part of a larger problem that's statewide, that's federal, that's national, and it's called the school, the prison pipeline. Why is survey not a like? Why is survey not a walkout? What like wh- like? How did you get obsessed with data collection? I think I felt like, honestly, it was a channel that we could use where that could speak for folks in my community that otherwise were being marginalized and not. Sp- able to even have a platform to speak. And I was always interested in in research in a way, growing up in a household of people who were always conscious about it and and very scholarly. But I think for me, you know, I could have, you know, gone to college afterwards and done data science, but not have had the relationship to data science the way that I do now, because I was able to use it as a real way to address real problems in my community. So I was hooked then. I was hooked to data. I was hooked to research. <laughs> I went to Brown, and my focus was to just do as many classes like in data science and, and research that I possibly could. And only at a school like Brown are you allowed to do something like that. And I was so eager to go back to Miami to just use my skills. And I got an opportunity right when I graduated. I was 22. I went back to the what same did organization. You study Brown? I studied Africana studies, uh-huh. but the focus was mainly econ. So Africana studies is like eight classes out of like, what, 40 classes? Most of my classes were econ. Oh my gosh, I was able to take graduate level, you yeah, know, Brown, you analysis. Like make, oh, uh, make I was, it it's amazing. They let me yeah. do whatever, you know, and I like, I like did not take like lower level calculus, but I was like in linear algebra because right. I would rather do <laughs> that than like, and only at Brown could you do that. So, yeah, so I, got, I, I went back to Miami and I was asked to work on a campaign, but this time around black infant mortality, something I knew nothing about. Breastfeeding, like I was 22, I was college-educated, feminist, but I, like most women, had knew nothing about breastfeeding. So I, I get to Miami and all they asked me to do was, okay, we've been working on this campaign for four years, we're, we're about to lose funding. All of what our organization moms, is an organization? Power Center for Social Change. Okay. All of our leaders who are moms have kind of like transitioned out of the organization because they moved away. But like, we just need somebody to finish the survey and call it a day. And because of the skills that I had and because of the uh, relationship with the grant with uh, Loyola Marymount University, awesome, awesome team there at um, their park center, we were able to not only finish the survey, which was surveying over 300 mothers on their experiences in hospitals. We were finding out that, you know, black babies are three times more likely to die before their first birthday than white babies. Mothers were having fatalistic experiences in hospitals, overuse of cesarean section, aggressive marketing of infant formula. So much was happening 
within just the hospital setting. And our hospital in Miami, coincidentally, was the largest public hospital in the country. So I knew that if I could win here, like, what would that mean for the rest of the country? And again, it was a situation of, it's me, an intern, and a team of like three moms. Like again, I did not have kids. I knew nothing about this, (laughs) but I knew data, and, and I knew the power of research, and I knew the power of analysis, and I knew that with just a little bit of media support, and some really good writing, we could take this data and bring it to life and make a really big impact. Even though the hospital CEO was ignoring us, nobody, you know, we were not on the radar until I wrote a report, published the findings, and they called us. And they completely changed the policies for the hospital, fired like the whole maternal and child health ward staff, turned it over with folks from Yale who had been specifically focused on baby-friendly hospitals. And to this day, like mothers and babies' lives are saved because of that. That's incredible. You know. Is that, yeah. do you think that's your greatest data-driven success? I think that's one of them. I think my greatest data-driven success is probably the work, how I've been able to turn my simple story my personal story as a girl just wanting to make a change into an entire movement now, you know? And that's why I started Data for Black Lives. I was like, I have such a different relationship to data and technology. I was on the internet building websites when I was like eight years old. But also I was seeing what was happening in the world around me, FICO credit scores, risk assessments, predictive analytics being used in child welfare services, data being really weaponized against people. And I said, how can we make data a tool for social change instead of a weapon of political oppression. And that's like where the idea data for black lives really came about. And I said, okay, but how do I actually start this, right? I know people who, from my work in the movement, working at awesome organizations like like Color of Change, working at Power Youth Center, people who with a little bit of data capacity, whether they're trying to fight a prison from being built in San Francisco or pass really important laws around gerrymandering in North Carolina or, you know, save a farm, you know, like people who with just a little bit of data support could do so much. I also knew people from college and folks that I just grew up with who were working at places like Instagram and Facebook and, you know, didn't really want their like passion for math and science to be like just designing and researching push notifications every day. Not that push notifications, I don't like push notifications, (laughs) but like you hear, you know, or people who are working at like Lockheed Martin and Boeing who are like, this is a good job, I have student loans, but like this is not what I want to do with my love for physics. So it, it felt like there was some critical mass. It felt like we were in a moment but the election also happened that that made it possible for people to want to step up in a different way for And that's why I started off with a conference. I said, I'm not the first person to have this conversation about how data can be used for social change. But what would it look like for us to bring people together? What would it look like for us to create a space, create panels, and do it? And within a week, the conference sold out. And it was amazing, the first So did you think of this as like a conference first, organization second, or... I thought of it as, let me see, if, yeah. let me test it. That's how I started girl. I tell people it was how I started yeah. girls. Like 20 mm-hmm. girls, conference room, you know what I mean? Hey. And just see what happens. And see what happens. Yeah. And I think it's shown me that, oh, wow, this is something that's needed, you know? And yes, the focus is on specifically looking at the role that data plays in the lives of black people who are directly impacted, at least in the, the context of American public policy, by certain conditions. But it's been such an amazing, like, multiracial, multigenerational movement of people who are like, I don't know if I can go to the protest. I don't think I'm, I should be at the community meeting. But, like, I can really, really, really run a, 
a regression analysis and like help you guys wrangle that data and like you know and and it's been such an amazing way to see people come into spaces that we create whether it's a conference whether it's stuff that we do in person here whether it's on our online group and really like um take whatever hats they're wearing off whatever identities they're wearing and just come in as people so what's next for you in the organization? There's so now, much Now, is the conference happening. and an organization now? Yes. A C3? So it's a 5-1-C3 organization and probably going to be a hybrid organization because we are also building some online tools to connect people. I'm building out what's going to be called a switchboard. I've been like the human switchboard. <laughs> people call me and they're like, hey... You know, we, we work with the National Fair Housing Alliance. There's a lot of stuff going on right now on how algorithms are being used in rental applications and in, and in mortgages. Can you help us train up some data scientists to testify in court, right? That Stuff like that. Or someone calls me and they're like, hey, like we're dealing with like some stuff in Hollywood where we think people are, certain studios are using algorithms to screen scripts and like deny people opportunities to get like green lighted. And it's like, okay, is this an algorithm? How can you help us? Wow. Or like people who are like, yeah, I work with moms in Cambridge, Massachusetts, single moms who are dealing with evictions and we don't have that much resources. We're trying to get the city to hear us. We're trying to... You know, how can we do some data collection to actually get on our decision makers' radar to get some real policies changed to change the material conditions for people right now? So I've been the human switchboard, but I'm developing this system where uh, through an online platform similar to like Kaggle, where people can go on and post up um, needs that they have around data and also folks can volunteer their support. So then you're getting right. So if people are listening right now. They're mm-hmm. data scientists. They're mm-hmm. like blown away what you're talking about. They want to volunteer. They can go to your website yep. and basically and do that. And it's on there. Yeah. You know, we have the ability to kind of, in a live streaming camera, right, capture every single physical emotional harm that's happening, especially against black and brown people. How do we, you know, how Mm. do we quantify all this raw data Mm. so that it goes beyond just a viral moment? Mm. You thought about that? That's a question. So in terms of like, how do we... Like, are you, is there, are you thinking about Mm. beyond, you know, cap, how do you capture some of this stuff that we're seeing to like... I think there's people who, one of the things my old boss Rashad used to always say was he would talk about presence, but also power, right? How do we have media presence around some social issues, but also some political power to change those issues? And I think, I believe that data is power. Our tagline at Data for Black Lives is data is power, data is accountability, and data is collective action. Because, you know, I can say, I can tell my own story about my experiences getting suspended or arrested, but it's so much more powerful that we had that report, you know? I couldn't bring 300 moms with me into the meeting that I had with the hospital, but they couldn't deny the data that I collected. Do I believe that if only one baby died or one mom died from a, from a bad birth experience, that should be enough to change policy? But unfortunately, it does take a lot of a harm. lot of harm in order to do something. So for me, it's like, how do we? I just love the position that we're in at Data for Black Lives, especially folks who are in the racial justice movement and social justice movement at large. Who, who are like, we're so tired of putting out fires. We're so tired of having to deal with reducing the harm. You guys are in a space where you can really imagine the future. You can really think about 10, 20 years down the line, what are the different things that we need? What are the ways that we can actually use data, AI, and all these new emerging tools, and all this exponential technology to also push <laughs> policy you know, and culture along in the right way? And that looks like, you know, who knows? But I think right now we're at a place where it's like 
continuing to listen and continuing to recognize um, opportunities to build and to connect people. And it's also so shocking to me that oftentimes like women in marginalized communities, we're just, we're, no one ever collects our data. So like no. when I was starting Girls Who Code, I, there were so many questions I had. And there was like one survey done like by the Girl Scouts, of course, right? Mm-hmm. And there, I was like, what? Like no one's ever asked no. girls or girls of color why they're not going into computer. Like right. no one ever asked the question. No one often asks us uh, the question. Right. And so it's so important. How mm. do you think that your organization too can actually affect and change research universities mm. or, you know, organizations great. that That's who's... That's a great question. I think about it all the time. I think that's part of the reason why we're so excited to partner with MIT. You know, my biggest supporter, honestly, has been President Raphael Rafe of MIT. When we talk about people, scientists, and people who are also politically evolved and conscious and empathetic, it's him. And I think that there has been a lot, there's a whole history around places like MIT, the people who come out of MIT, you know, but like just being able to partner And not just have this conference, but just do work throughout the year internally to work with folks, not just at the Black Student Union, but all throughout the university. And also another thing, too, you know, I recently wrote an open letter to Facebook on behalf of the Data for Black Lives movement where I was like, hey, you know, I don't believe in shutting down Facebook. I don't think that's going to happen. But I do believe that there's so much resources at Facebook in terms of data, our collective data that's being used to whatever ends, but also people, right? I know folks who are in our movement who work at Facebook, who are not malicious, who maybe don't have exposure to certain social issues. So when they're in a situation and they're developing whatever new automated process to do, you know, uh, ads, especially like around housing ads, maybe they don't realize that like, this is a proxy for race and you're excluding people and... This is why this is an issue. And that's why for us, it's like, how do we get people out of isolation? Hate thrives in isolation. Fear thrives in isolation. How do we break down these barriers? And like, how do we actually, again, like for me, it's about data, but it's also about leadership development. How do I build up people's leadership so that whether they're at Google or Facebook or they're a mom advocating on behalf of their kids and and are using data to do that, that they're so much more empowered and they're asking the right questions. And when they hear about Cambridge Analytica or they hear about Equifax data breach, they know what kind of questions to ask and they know what that means for them. So last question, we ask everybody this, you know, what's the moment where you decided it was better to be brave, not perfect, to leave kind of your fear of imperfection and failure behind and just Go for it. Wow. I think it's been stepping into this role as executive director. I, for a long time, wanted to be behind the scenes, Mm. especially like being an organizer and doing even like doing research. Like I wanted to just get a PhD and just kind of like live in the stacks and publish, but like not really be out there. And I think I had to realize that like, A, like I'm one of the leaders that we've been waiting on. And I can do this and people believe in me and I believe in myself and it's okay to also be vulnerable. It's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to 
ask questions and it's okay, again, to not be perfect. And in that perfection, that's like so much more powerful. So yeah, this is this whole past year has been like just a personal transformation for me of also just unlearning a lot of like the societal stuff around being a woman and being in a leadership position and you know, dealing with a male dominant space like tech, but all right, I'm I'm like, you need some advice. <laughs> I know <laughs> you need to like complain. Yeah, you got me. I mean, it's it's. I was you know when I started Girls Code, right? I was terrified. I'd never done it before, and I'd never yeah. been a nonprofit leader or an executive yeah. director, and you know, and and um, it's fun to learn something new, and it's mm. so funny in listening to you for the past however so many minutes we've been talking, like. You were born to do this. Wow. Like yeah. you just, you know, like <laughs> you're so incredibly inspiring because you believe and this is your baby. It is. And there's no one better. There's no one better to put an idea into the world than the person who first dreamed it. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Brave Not Perfect. Got a question for me? Send us a note at bravenotperfectpodcast at gmail.com or call in directly via the Anchor app on your phone. Until next time, this has been an episode of Brave Not Perfect with me, Reshma Sajani.